Welcome to STEMiverse Podcast Episode 45. In this episode, Peter and Marcus talk with Sanyan Dedic. Sanyan has a bachelor's in mechatronic systems, majoring in robotics and computer vision, and spent several years working in the industry as an engineer. He then retrained as a teacher and taught systems engineering and digital technologies at secondary level. Recently, he's been developing a series of technology programs for gateways, gifted and talented education, covering everything from coding to robotics to applied mathematics and microcontrollers. These programs have been delivered to students in Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra and Queensland. As head of e-learning at Texaland, he has combined his technological expertise with his educational experience to create innovative teacher training programs and resources. This is STEMiverse Podcast Episode 45. STEMiverse is a podcast produced by Tech Explorations. Our mission is to help educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. Whether you are a professional or casual teacher teaching in a classroom or a parent or caretaker teaching at home, this podcast brings you the knowledge and experiences of practitioners, academics, entrepreneurs and lifelong learners who are passionate about education and strive every day to help our children prepare for life in a world of radical change and why not abundance. Marcus, Peter, you're back in the lab. I am. It's been too long. I haven't seen you for a while. What's been happening? What has been happening? We've had Edutech. Yes. Feels Uh, like a a million years, maybe mm, a million years ago. It's been a long time. Edutech, what else? I've been taking a few weeks off for a special project. Yes, uh, top secret. We're not telling anybody about about that. that. No, no. Uh, What else? Uh, Um, What's happening in England? So you're going to England next week? On Sunday, so today is Friday, and we'll be doing the meet and greets and saying hello to people and seeing where they make the raspberry pies and all that stuff, so that should be fun. Take lots of photos. Yes. Yeah, I know that's... Uh, there are secrets, so they're not actually allowing you to take video. Yeah, uh, they, I've top secret. We'll see what we can get away with. I think uh, Sony yeah. does have some guidelines. Something like you, there's only allowed to be small groups at a time. And Sony is a manufacturer for the Raspberry Pi. Yes, in England, in right? England. Yeah. Well, in Wales, actually. So yeah, they make a distinction between the two over there. It's <laughs> <laughs> a different country. Yes, totally. Well, it's going to be an awesome experience. Yeah, it should be yeah. great. Are there going to be any workshops, um, any any training? They haven't specified exactly what's there, although they have sessions. Right. It's like going to a, a conference without, where everything is a mystery. It's two days of sessions and three sessions per day. So that'll be interesting. So that's going to be over two days, but you're staying over, over in Wales a little longer? Uh, so flying over Sunday, <laughs> don't have to bore the audience with this. <laughs> Arriving in on Monday, going straight to the conference on the Monday, and uh, doing that for Monday, Tuesday, and then it's a little bit happening on Wednesday, and then coming back to Australia. That sounds really hard work. Um, Yes, sounds really hard work. Well, enjoy. (laughs) And uh, when you're back, we'll do a special one and you can tell us what you saw. I will let you know all the secrets. You know, by speaking about Edutech, um, who did we meet at Edutech? Oh, uh, there were a few people, but there was one in particular. Well, 
Are you trying to do a segue or are we going to talk about all the audience members that came up and said how wonderful Peter is? Oh, no, 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 come, come. Uh, no, no, definitely not. Uh, uh, let's talk about Sanyin, who has been waiting uh, very patiently <laughs> the other side of <laughs> the line or the internet, really. Mm-hmm. And so we met Sanyin yeah. there. Yes. Hey, Sanyin, how are you? Pretty good, guys. <laughs> Thanks for waiting. It's all good. Interesting uh, discussion about, you know, the Raspberry Pi factory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Get yeah. as much info as you can. I'd be curious about a few things myself. Yes. It's the uh, Sony. Yes. Sony, yeah. I think everything is covered under our NDA, but uh, hopefully they'll it. say stuff that's, you can talk about this. Oh, I'm hoping that it's mostly teacher-type training or educator training. Yeah. Rather than just the, here's how to sell the Raspberry Pi. Exactly, yeah. I think it's going to be a lot of education in there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what the Raspberry Pi Foundation is all about. Yes. But, hey, this episode is not about the Raspberry Pi or Sony. It's about Sanyin, who we met, what, a couple of weeks now ago at Edutech. We had a, a discussion there, and I thought uh, he, he's an amazing person to have on a podcast because of what he does. Mm-hmm. So how about we give uh, Sanyin a opportunity to talk uh, about his background and what he does and then uh, we'll talk about a lot of interesting things take it away Chanyin. tell us uh, who you are oh all right um i don't know a brief life story i'm i'm originally from bosnia but uh i had lived in libya under Gaddafi's rule oh. for about eight years before coming to australia my parents Whoa. worked in the oil company awesome in sorry the what company Oil. You oil. know, for the, in the oil industry. Oh, in the oil. Actually, yeah, yeah. my dad was built the uh, man-made river. He worked on the man-made river project in Libya, oh. which how is like old, those giant pipes. How old were you? Um, like, do you remember life in Libya during Gaddafi? Yeah, 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 yeah. Whoa. I do. I do pretty well, actually. Okay, um, I think maybe we'll talk a little bit about that as well. It's not exactly yeah, education. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, I'll, I'll continue <laughs> like, to, to, to the yeah. educational <laughs> technology track. So yes. I, after, after year 12, I came to Australia. I did uh, mechatronic systems at ANU, which was, you know, one of the fairly early robotics degrees um, mm-hmm. in Australia. And then I worked as a mechanical design engineer for like, um, they were a pump company. Uh, we mostly did mine the watering systems. So basically for five years, I was developing solutions to figure out how to get, you know, millions of liters of water from the bottom of mines to the top mm-hmm. in the cheapest way possible with certain constraints. So that was a lot of fun, but I kind of got tired of it after five years and, uh, they were giving out scholarships to get a teaching qualifications like crazy. And that was, I think about 2012. Mm-hmm. So I, Decided to try that out. And yeah, I got into teaching. I taught for one year at secondary and then other opportunities uh, opened up. So I ended up uh, doing gifted workshops for an organization called Gateways. And as you know, we're in a field where expertise, you know, people that have an educational background and real technical expertise and and this type of stuff um, are relatively rare. I am now doing um, teacher training for a number of organizations like digital teaching and learning, DLTV here in Victoria, Critical Agendas, TTA over there in Sydney. So I'll be over there in, um, I think, September Hmm. 6th, something like that. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I live my life developing curriculum, basically, 
testing it out on, on uh, gifted kids, basically around the country, turning that into teacher resources, and then also doing some consulting with schools. Great. Create content. It's Sounds a very hard job. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we like him because of what he does. I thought, oh, that's not self-serving. <laughs> no, it's really a hard yeah. job, like writing good uh, curriculum. So, um, hmm. so you, your background is in mechatronics. You've been an engineer yeah. in the mining industry. You decided to go into education. Um, what did you do, mechatronics? Um, you know, like... I had, first of all, my dream was to become a professional tennis player. And being an engineer was, you know, if, in case I fail at that particular endeavor. Yep. And I thought, uh, you know, I was pretty good at maths and, and pretty practical, mechanical. I was obsessed with Lego my whole life. And out of all the engineering degrees, this one sounded the most, uh, you know, how do I put it? The most adventurous technically. Mm-hmm. And that not a lot of thought went into that decision, but it just kind of seemed the coolest sounding thing out there, mm. you know, majoring yeah. in robotics and computer vision. So that's, that's kind of why I picked it. The badge is important. And sorry, what year was this? Um, so I started in 2003 mm-hmm. and graduated in 2007. Okay. So at that time, you, what were you using? You wouldn't have been using Arduinos. No oh, technology, right? That would be Pixel. Oh, like I, I honestly don't even know. Like we had, we had microcontrollers and breadboards, and and we did like um, even machine language. But we used a lot of MATLAB, so a lot of mm-hmm. like control systems mm-hmm. with MATLAB and computer vision. I think we also used MATLAB to sort of um, analyze images, count colors of pixels, and then kind of write algorithms that recognize objects. So I think mm-hmm. MATLAB sticks out more than anything else. But there was, yeah. for object-oriented programming, we did something called Eiffel. You yes. have to Google yep. that. Yep. And most people don't know about it, but apparently this creator of Eiffel was one of the pioneers of object-oriented programming. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the language has built in structural integrity such that it's really hard to write bad programs. Mm-hmm. Yep. But, uh, you know, imagine doing that as your first ever life experience in programming. It was pretty, it was pretty yeah, crazy. Yeah, they did something similar to that for us. Uh, so I did uh, okay. mechatronics. I did not finish. Right. <laughs> He's a dropout. <laughs> I'm a proud dropout. <laughs> dropout. I know, I hacked the system down. I wish it was a dropout, actually, you know. Uh, Being a dropout, you know, is uh, <laughs> it's 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 a very high level thing. Apparently, every Silicon Valley billionaire has to drop yeah. out before they graduate. Otherwise, it must be bad luck or something. So uh, I think, Marcus, no. you're you're in good company there. You know, I've, no, got, no. I've got to clarify. <laughs> I think. Uh, <laughs> Being a dropout at, at that level, especially, uh, indicates that you really have strong convictions about what really you want to be able to do, and you're prepared to um, perhaps upset a few people in order to do that. No, I was doing a postgraduate degree at the same time. <laughs> I, so hacked this, I hacked the system, <laughs> so wow. I have a Even master's that's without a bachelor's. So I just thought oh, this is more, way more interesting. Anyway, um, that is very interesting. You got a bachelor's, so master's without a bachelor's. To be yeah. like, to be honest, like I don't know if how how your guys' university was, but personally, I felt like this is um, this is like not teaching me engineering in 
a very practical sense at all. I felt like it was just a four-year-long test of IQ and work ethic. You know, I I'm just going to throw really thick books and, and 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 you know complex problems at you. And if you survive, then we'll give you this piece of paper, and people are going to trust that you can learn stuff fast enough mm-hmm. to, to pick it up. And but yeah. that that was kind of my my impression of doing engineering at ANU. It was yeah, I feel the same. very, like, very hectic. I did engineering. I understand the difference between academia and the outside world. I think they're complementary to each other. I think you can have one and not the other. So I, I felt like that when I finished my engineering degree, that I, I knew a lot of stuff, but I didn't know how to put them together in something real, build something. Mm-hmm. So the first few years after university was all about that. It was all about applying and uh, putting to practice what I learned by reading textbooks the four, five previous yeah, years. And to be to be fair, the thing did actually, you know, uh, was beneficial in a couple of ways. Like when mm-hmm. I was at my work, I was like the only person volunteering for crazy projects. Like when, I don't know, we had to pump something called, you guys know what a non-Newtonian fluid is? Oh, uh, non-Newtonian, yes. yeah, like conf- it, it, It's like yeah. Kuklek, you know? Yeah. yeah. And basically, technically, it turns into a rock and most pumps look like fans. So it just breaks pumps like crazy. And like, you know, we wanted to offer that and nobody wanted to do it. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Sounds like fun. So you, you sort of get an attitude, you get an attitude of, of uh, I don't know, it's not just can do, but there's a certain excitement to, you know, higher level technical problems that you get out of it. And also what you get out of it, I suppose, is a realization that at one of the better universities in the country, I mean, this stuff is not taught very well on average. Maybe it is today, but when I was there, I as I said, like there were kids arriving for the first time in their life writing a line of code. Mm-hmm. And I had like 150 lines of code assessment and object-oriented programming within six days. Mm-hmm. To mention what a mission impossible that is, is it's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, character. They, they certainly did that to us as well. I, I can distinctly uh, remember. You have to build this algorithm. And it, for this one, it had to be in C. And they didn't even show us how you compile in C. Mm. <laughs> just like, here's all like the, the theoretical, how do, you, how you do the algorithms and what have you. And they give you the pseudocode, but there's no... <laughs> but hang on, you did have Google, right? Yeah, but back then, okay, we didn't have they're the resources of Stack Overflow. We had like uh, <laughs> that BS expert exchange yeah. that... You know, they show Which one actually thing. you had to pay for that. Yeah, they show one thing to Google. Yeah. And then when you actually hit up the yeah, $10 site. Yeah, $10 site. And the answers were rubbish. Uh, hey, Sanya, so, yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> let, let's take our conversation further and try to uh, sure. un- uncover some educational gems <laughs> from this conversation. So I'd, I'd like to ask you, like, you've got your industrial experience in the mining industry in Australia, pretty advanced stuff. And then you decide to move into education and write curricula. So I'm curious, how did you carry your experiences and your knowledge from one sector into the other? And if you feel that there has been an influence? Um, that's, that's a good question. I had, to be honest, I hadn't thought about it much, but I, I would definitely say there was. I'll give you one example. So, like, I go into schools and they have STEM programs and they ask me, well, what do you think of these? And and generally, you know, with teachers, you have to be very complimentary and nice before you give any criticism. But the reality is in, in schools, they there's such a stress on things that you can measure, like documentation. Hmm. Kids build, spend six months on a project that doesn't 
work. And then they have five, you know, they have a hundred pages of prettily arranged documents. And I kind of just sort of moved them in a direction saying, look, you know, first you got to prove that something works. You got to build something that at least in the lab is going to hold together for more than 10 minutes to prove that a product can be a product. At that point, you can think about, you know, documenting why it works and how other people can build it and how it can be systematized and improved. So I think that that that's kind of one one random example. Right. Um, so so sorry to interrupt you, but uh, so if I understand right, what you took from the industry was that you documented things that actually did work in order to allow others to understand how it worked and then to take it further and prove in the future, etc. Whereas typically what you see in education is that documentation is one of the things that are done uh, because that's how it's always been done, right? Not specifically. Yeah, there is also just this attitude of like, it has to work in the real world being mm. goal number one. And I don't think that that should be true just for industry. I think mm. that, you know, if you're going to build a circuit prototype of something, the journey of actually working, optimizing and documenting it only becomes relevant after you've built something that shows enough promise that it's going right. to work. So I think I've, I've been helping schools move a little bit more in that direction. And I, I, I use the, um, the term minimum viable product. Mm -hmm. Um, that, that's, that's kind of a very popular Silicon Valley term, but I think that that is really the first stage of engineering development. Ooh, tell us, tell us more about the MVP. What is it? Why is it important? Well, the idea is that let's say you have a plan to have a product that is going to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Well, if you identify the most important aspects and maybe they're A and C, you go about, well, what is the simplest thing that we can build that has those attributes that can get feedback? Now, for Silicon Valley, it's, it's feedback from the market. It is seeing whether consumers like it. And then, you know, from that point on, they invest more heavily in projects, they get in and then develop them further. But in terms of, uh, you know, what I did professionally, you know, for example, we have a pump that we want to move under a certain price point, which means that certain parts that are metal now have to be made out of plastic. Well, the minimum viable product is you make the strongest possible plastic part meaning you use as much plastic as possible. You buy the strongest one and you put it through a set of tests. And if it fails any of them, then this is, uh, you know, then this is a pipe dream, right? So mm -hmm. you go to a catalog, you select the strongest possible variation of plastic. And if that's not good enough, there's no point taking that process any further. So you kind of devise a first experiment that is going to reveal that's going to reveal how promising a particular course of action is. In this oh, case, right, you right. know, replacing uh, this particular metal part with a plastic one. It's, uh, I think uh, people may be familiar with the minimal viable product and tests that companies like Dropbox, for example, have mm -hmm. implemented. Do you know that story? Oh, I'm, I'm, yeah, okay. I don't know the, the Dropbox example. So I'll, I'll give you the curious quick version of the story because that is going to help, I think, our listeners to understand what an MVP is, um, not just in engineering, but in business and pretty much any aspect of life. So the founder of 
Dropbox uh, had this idea of making it possible for files that sits that sit and live in different computers and devices like smartphones to be able to really easily transparently synchronize between them mm-hmm. so that when a person that owns a Word document, for example, on one computer makes a change, it would document that the same change is reflected automatically without the person having to do anything on all other computers. So instead of going down, uh, sitting down on his computer and starting to write the software that would support this kind of functionality, he just took a bit of paper and started drawing <laughs> on the paper what the user interface would look like, what would happen if the user makes a change to one file that was on just a dummy piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And there would be another piece of paper that represented uh, the result of that action on another computer. So we'll play around with pieces of paper and describe the process to his friends. And that paper-based version of Dropbox was the minimal viable product because oh, it indicated that people... I that's the definition of MBAP. Okay, keep on going. Yeah, no, I'd like to hear yours yeah. as well. But there's a story of how Dropbox uh, began at least as a proof of concept of whether people would be interested in this kind of in this kind of product, because before that, people used to use things like FTP, where they would have one single repository for all the codes, and all the computers would upload and download constantly files from mm-hmm. that single location. So what's your definition or example, Marcus? So when I think about MVP, it's more about the minimum feature set that is required yep. to support a product. So the great example is the companies that, you know, say that they have some AI or magic system black box that's going to do something where in reality it's the founders busily doing things by hand in a non-scalable way (laughs) behind the scenes and they find out what the customers Uh, actually want and then based on that they go and build the features for real. So it might be working out of a spreadsheet to begin with behind the scenes and then ultimately building the web application or hardware or whatever it is. And this this whole company is being built on those MVP principles where... MVP and lean startup. Like imagine (laughs) before you had Google automatically like aggregating the knowledge of the world. Uh, I'm exaggerating here a little bit, but imagine that behind Google, there's a bunch of people. So you put your search term in the Google field and you think that everything is happening automatically in the background, but actually you've got a guy there. Could be monkeys. Well, there was. Um, There were literally web search companies that were based off this uh, one that comes to mind was Moholo by Jason Calacanis. Mm-hmm. And they would literally have agents sitting... Humans. Humans. Doing the work. Doing the work initially. Users would receive were automatically And then yeah. they would, uh, you know, eventually the computer took over, but that's how they started. Right. And you know, mm. he pivoted. It is. It is a concept that has saved a lot of work. Well, one thing that I would say, like the commonality between everything that we said is finding the shortest possible amount of, the smallest possible amount of work you can get to get really valuable real world feedback mm-hmm. on something that your final product will be. Yep. And I guess, you know, in engineering, we, we, I never use the term minimum viable product, but I do use it in education because, you know, people love the, the new Silicon Valley lingo. Minimum and viable it students. really paints a correct picture of what it is that you should be trying to do. I mean, you should mm-hmm. be trying to prove that something A works and B is 
showing itself to be somewhat useful before you go through the long journey of, of trying to make it into a, um, you know, a finished product. Hmm. What are the, some of the applications of the minimal viable product in education? Either perhaps, you know, in your case, you are a curriculum designer. Um, what if you're a teacher? Uh, for example, like designing a curriculum, um, how can you apply these principles? Okay, like, so I'll give you a a really short story with a school uh, that I worked with, uh, Northside Christian College. So I was only with them for four sessions, but this this whole thing was 10 double sessions, and then they continued on with their teacher. And they had this, the subject is called innovation. They had been doing it for years. And basically, uh, it's exactly the, the, the standard type, you know, kids spend 85% of their time writing reports mm. on something that probably doesn't work. So I asked them to do a concept design on one sheet, one paper of after, this was after doing about five hours of Arduino. We've just gone through the basics and used 10 sensors. And I just said, okay, other than the tools that we use, you can introduce only one new sensor or actuator and you should propose a product and everything about that product should fit on a page. At which point we're going to order it and you're going to build a prototype. Hmm. So with those massive constraints, I mean, the kids had to use stuff that they already knew how to use because they had done the tutorials. They'd already done uh, basic, you know, button activated circuits. So we did some reaction time. We blinked LEDs. We uh, tripped a relay to start a fan. And with those tools, they developed things like um, one was a low power battery operated Arduino that was going to be in a fridge that was going to raise an alarm if the fridge ever raised above a certain temperature. So it had a temperature sensor. This kid actually lived rurally and they had lost a fridge worth of meat twice in the last 10 years. And this would be kind of useful for them. The other one was a UV sensor on the roof of the school, the trip to relay that, that had an alarm when, when the UV index went outside of a certain range. And another one was an attempt at a lie detector. So one of the sensors that we had used was a uh, heart rate sensor by, by DF Robot. And this kid also heard that if you combine a heart rate sensor with a um, skin conductivity sensor, mm. then you have, you know, a lie detector test. So they had basically all within our four sessions together built a working prototype, which then they continued with in, in their remaining sessions. And the way this would have looked otherwise would have been that, you know, the, the step of having something that works was, is an ambition that may or may not be fulfilled. Whereas, you know, as an engineer, I think that that is the first step. Unless you have a prototype that, that's, that has some value, then you should, uh, spend the rest of your time, no matter how much time you have allocated to building such a prototype, because, you know, writing imaginary reports and imaginary things that might just work is useless, pointless. Mm. I mean, We've we've probably all done that at university, but oh, yeah. if, if there is something that I'd like to change in engineering education, it, it is that precisely. Like unless you have a prototype, you really you might as write as well write a fictional yeah. book because. Well, uh, are you saying that reports should be abolished, or perhaps maybe balancing them better with results? Oh, no, I'm and not saying that reports should be abolished. I'm saying the report is something that comes after a prototype that hmm. works reasonably well. 
even in education. And that the project, you know, let's say we have 10 weeks together, you're going to get as much of this done. You're going to build a, a prototype. You're going to then write a small report on that prototype if it works, and then you're going to optimize it and report on those optimizations. Mm-hmm. You document it sufficiently for other people to replicate it. But let's say you can't build that prototype. Well, maybe you should try building another one because writing reports on something that just doesn't work is not fun for the student and it's mm. not the best use of their time. You get you get my point. Yeah. I, I suppose you can learn from things that don't work. I, I learn a lot all the time <laughs> because I do make you things You can learn a lot from them. things that work half the time or work, you know, in a suboptimal way, but, you know, not work at all. That's uh, it's a different category altogether. Sanyin, I wanted to ask you about just a little bit more emphasis on reports. What do you think that a good report should be like or should contain? And I'm thinking that now being in the 21st century, we have a lot of ways to communicate with other people, whereas back in my days with university, you had to print it out on paper, actually maybe mm-hmm. type it on paper and hand it over to your supervisor who would be the only person looking at it, should we be taking more advantage of you know, what communication is like today in the context of schools and universities? Well, I think that, you know, first of all, I, I tell the students even even once that attend my engineering classes that persuasive speech hmm. is probably the more the most useful skill set in the whole world. Um, so I think that if they build something, they should first of all have rationale for why they did it. I mean, why it's interesting, why it's useful, why it made them excited. They should answer all the whys and that that should be, that mm. should be present in their presentation or report. Secondly, they should think on a practical level, what information is essential in order for this to be replicated? I mean, we are, we're dealing, you know, with programs and, and circuitry. So if they did something interesting, You know, it's just like we have Instructables or Hackster IO, the, the same principles apply. You want to put down the essential information for this to be replicated. So, uh, you know, a schematic that other students and teacher can understand the code, which is commented and not just mm-hmm. commented, but rationalized. I did this because and that because mm-hmm. that because. And finally, You know, it should include uh, maybe a, a wider, more grand visions of, of implications of what would what would it mean if we built this into something industrial and hmm. perhaps you know more like talk about the future, perhaps potential ideas yeah, or improvements. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about the media that we use? Like as I said, in in my days, we used to use paper. Now there's multimedia, like should you make a video, for example? Should you uh, talk about it in uh, in your Facebook group? Or should we put, like students put their code on GitHub, for example, share share the code with um, the world, essentially, not just the class? Yeah, I think videos are, you know, videos are a valuable, uh, a valuable tool for, for teaching and also to sort of demonstrate that an outcome was reached, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because... You know how temperamental and sensitive gadgets and electronic devices can be, you know, they work one minute and the next thing they're yeah. up in smoke. So yeah. actually recording, recording that progress, uh, is, is definitely a good idea. Yeah. And I do advise that 
I do advise that to students. And I mean, yeah, like animated presentations. Have you ever used Prezi before? PRZY? Yeah. 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 You know, those are, those are pretty cool. And also I think, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit old school when it comes to electronics. I like kids to actually draw schematics and just do mm. something like TinyCAD. <laughs> but I think in terms of their own understanding and their own documentation, using a tool like, um, Tinkercad, mm. have, have you ever drawn circuits with that? Yes, I have. Yeah. It's great. I, I think that's pretty awesome. And, and, you know, clearly conveying, uh, conveying information for sure yeah tinkercad allows you to simulate as well doesn't it so that you can play yeah. with circuits in software it that's just right speeds up that's right this tinkering mm-hmm. um, aspect of learning and i mean imagine like uh, as a teacher if, if that's what is what it is that you're marking that's a lot easier you know than getting a bunch of you know jumbled wires uh, or like a breadboard circuit that you're not sure what's meant to go where and you're trying to follow a schematic. Mm. If, if they actually had documented it in t- Tinkercad and given it to you, you can press play, see what it does, read the code, yeah. and you can have a very clear idea about what it is that the students did in, in much less time than, uh, than in a traditional way, I suppose. In my, uh, in my bootcamp, I, I encourage students to keep notes on paper. So as you're working on a circuit, even on the breadboard, uh, just have pen and pencil or paper. Sorry. <laughs> just have, you know what I mean, <laughs> pen and paper, yeah. and just scribble down what you're doing, and that helps you because you know people forget, especially when you get it started. You try to remember: did I put the LED in this orientation or the other orientation? I can't remember why and which way I did it, but uh, you can just uh, scribble it down. So writing, taking notes is an essential part of learning, especially in the beginning. And I think it, it should be also like, th- this is, trust me when I say this, uh, I, I, go, I, I, I teach a great many groups for the first time in this field. I think kids have different ways of, of documenting what they do. So I generally like leave it open-ended, but say, hey, what you're doing is pretty interesting. There's going to be files. If you don't have a USB, you should email those to yourself. Um, if you've mm. got a little, if you've got your phone here, you can take videos. If you want to draw diagrams of it, those are my personal favorites. Mm. But if mm. you, if you want to take notes of any description, um, keeping track of that when you revise and being able to see your own like notes on a particular subject, mm. especially like I know that you do online courses. I think revising something where you can go back to that lesson where you have mm. your own your own notes for it and I guess your own prototype programs of it is yep. is going to work a lot better than like just going back to it as if you're going back to like you know Absolutely. that particular chapter in a textbook. Yeah. So do you have a preferred electronics kit to teach from? Um oh yeah. <laughs> Arduino Zero to Hero. Um, I think that's a good one. So I've got um I've been using Arduino with students since I started teaching at the start of 2013. Actually, I bought my own students an Arduino kit Mm -hmm. with my own money because the school school I was working for had already spent their whole technology budget. And uh, I had actually been buying stuff from, you know, eBay and Banggood and and using that because because they were cheaper. And until mm-hmm. one day I got hired to to do a mini curriculum for a school that was using the Afrobot kits, yeah. which 
I actually really liked. And I ended up getting in touch with DF Robot and we ended up making a kit together, which incorporated all my favorite tutorials that I created over the years. So it's called Arduino Zero to Hero and it comes together with uh, an online course. So by all means, Google that and you can get it at uh, Marcus's Little Bird Electronics. I hear they're also a good store too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. highly recommend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, can you tell us about that process of making the kit? The process and the outcome. So, what do you learn ah. from the kit or with the kit? Well, okay. So, well, first of all, I just thought that I wanted to do something that I haven't seen done in many other um, sort of online Arduino courses. It's that to take a slightly slower start than most people do because. The clients I always imagined for this kit would be schools and, and students, a lot of students doing it for the first time. So they do a whole module on just building circuits. So they don't write a single line of code. And all they got to figure out initially is what a schematic is and how to represent that on a breadboard. And they actually build a circuit and usually they have a couple of challenges to play around. So basically the pedagogy of it is about 50% following a set of instructions given by the online course and about 50% is subsequent troubleshooting. And it's systematic in that they start with just circuits. Then they do just simple digital sensors like, like, a, like a button or a PIR, just a simple on and off. Then they do analog sensors, which have you know values 1,000 to, sorry, 0 to 1,023. Then they use sensor libraries and finally, they build like more advanced circuits and applications. Like, I mean, there's a memory training game in there. There's a guess a number game with the uh, seven segment display. And there's some fairly advanced concepts with like gyro and accelerometer visualizations mm-hmm. using a software called Processing. Have you ever? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's we one of the originals. Of um, back in the day. Is that still used? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, I'll rephrase that. Are you using processing on the desktop or using processing JS? I just went to processing.org. Okay, so the old school processing. And I looked at their code examples in terms of visually representing yeah. the uh, serial output. So I think it's the it's a Windows installation. Um, so what is processing, Sejan? Could you describe what processing is for our audience, please? So... Processing is a software that uses like a C Java like programming language that represents, uh, basically it's like a visual output. Uh, you generate a screen, you draw on it, and it's quite convenient to, um, have your sensor outputs displayed in a visual manner. So for example, if you were trying to make something like a Segway, you could map how much power you want to be giving to the motors to stabilize it and how far of center uh, you are at present. So it's it's a very good way to visualize Hmm. outputs Hmm. of a microcontroller. And other than that, it's kind of famous in the world because people have done a lot of like fractals. They've generated a lot of fractal geometry with it and with a fairly high amount of detail. So I imagine that, you know, processing would be a bit like turtle, except that it's a lot faster and more efficient. 
And have you ever used Turtle with? Uh, it's logo, like the original yeah. logo. Yeah, when I was like fifteen, I think. Yes. My Apple IIe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, if you know what logo is, really processing, you would you would take the turtle away and you would literally be drawing pixel by pixel. But processing would be something that's a lot more dynamic and efficient, but does very similar things. Processing is to programming what Arduino is to electronics. Yeah. So processing was designed for artists and designers mm. to be able to create visualizations uh, without needing to know too much programming. And the programming that they did need to know was pretty simple. And that's pretty much the same ethos as the Arduino to make electronics and making accessible to those who don't necessarily you know, have an embedded firmware background. And in fact, the... Um the whole the interface and the syntax is very similar to Arduino. Like if you use mm, Arduino, mm, mm. getting to use processing is not going to take too much effort. I actually believe that the IDEs were a fork of each other. Okay, there you go. Yeah, they are. Some people get confused. They think that processing is Arduino for the desktop. Yeah. It's something separate. Just well, there. to be fair, processing, I believe, was Java yeah. uh, back in the day. And, mm. Well, still I, is Java. a cut-down version of Java, similar yeah. to how Arduino is a cut-down version of C++. Mm. Whilst you um, can do C++ in the IDE if you want to, it does take away the rough edges of having yeah. to do I should, I should also mention that uh, I also use processing, and the way by which I use processing as an Arduino person is I connect my Arduino to my computer via the USB serial port, and then I can send data from the Arduino's sensors mm -hmm. to my processing script, and then the script will visualize the data into bar graphs, for example, and create some interesting user interfaces, which is a, a very common way to use the pr processing with the Arduino in the engine. Yeah. It's like to visualize uh, sensor data from the Arduino onto the desktop. It's uh, something that uh, people ten tend to do quite a bit with processing. Yeah, mm. with, the ad with the advent of web uh, serial or web USB. Oh, you can do it wirelessly. It, I think well, you can actually just plug it in and Chrome will detect your Arduino yeah. or your serial and you can pump data straight in that way. And I think that is really lowering the ba barrier for a lot of people. Yeah. Have you guys used much of the sort of, uh, you know, in-browser Arduino? Because I've tried it out and yeah, like so when it just came out, it was really bad. I don't know if it's probably getting better. In the past for teaching, I've used uh, Codebender, which mm. was a... Uh, another Greek yeah, <laughs> technology by Vasily. The first similar, uh, the first cloud interface mm -hmm. for programming the Arduino. So they and use some, some more Yeah, I heard that. of that. That's like, uh, at one school didn't have proper laptops. They had Chrome pads yeah, and that was yeah. the only thing that you could, sorry, the, the, like, what do you Chrome call books. them? Yeah. Chrome books. Chrome books. Chrome books. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I hate them so much. I don't bother learning the names, but yeah. So you had to. Uh, uh, yes. Codebender was one way that you could use Arduino with a Chromebook. So unfortunately, the uh, the API, what I call it, NACL, so Native Chrome Libraries, that's being deprecated in favor of uh, Web USB. So in the past, you had to install a plugin for Codebender if you wanted it to work into Chrome, work in Chrome, and now it's just built. Mm. These technologies are built into Chrome. So I think there's going to be a lot of stuff happening soon. I like the desktop because of the speed. Like, I don't want to have, I don't want any lag when it comes to compiling and uploading because mm. uh, my 
compilation, recompilation, re-uploading cycles are very quick. Like I will change one letter literally and recompile. And <laughs> ah, look, guys, honestly, we're, we're doing this the old way. The new way yeah, is the BBC microbit, micropython type of way where you're actually running yeah. essentially an interpretive, interpreted language on the device. Hmm. So, yeah. 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 The only thing, the only tricky thing is I believe that microbit will be able to do this with Chrome, but at the moment, by the standard way of putting those programs in, you don't get to see the sensor readings for the microbits. Which... You can, look, there's no reason why they can't do that. Hmm. I, I'm sure it's coming. I'm sure yeah. it's coming. Like, there's a lot of momentum behind so you it. You could just and, pop uh, it out via serial. I'm sure that's coming. So all these technologies tend to confuse me. Like a few years ago, we only had Arduino IDE version 1.03 and that it would stay like that for six months. Right? Mm-hmm. Now we've got a new version like every couple of weeks. We've got all these cloud compilers and capabilities. Mm-hmm. We've got different technologies like the microbit coming out with two different or three different ways to program it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of very confusing technologies and capabilities and processes. Now, you are sending us a, an, an educator who are also responsible for creating curriculum, probably have a, a method or like a system for simplifying all that and putting it into order that can allow people with different levels of capability, different knowledge and backgrounds to learn effect efficiently, which is very important, like we're in a hurry, constantly including students. Uh, what, in your opinion, what makes a good curriculum? What are some of the attributes, and in particular STEM curriculum? Okay, what makes a good curriculum? Okay, I'll give you examples of stuff I've created, and I'll tell you why I think they're kind of cool. So, first of all, you're kind of aiming at... I would say three or four key criteria. Well, I guess let's start with the curriculum that you have to meet, the Australian Digital Technologies curriculum. So teachers, first of all, want to want to know that that what your content is, what your learning sequence is, meets that. Students, on the other hand, want something that is genuinely interesting and exciting. And finally, beyond actually ticking all the boxes for the teacher is something that's exciting. What you want is a learning sequence that develops slowly, taking one concept at a time that students get to put in practice and build on and build on. And doing all these three together is, is quite a challenge. There are certain general principles. So I would say that if you're doing something like Arduino, you would do circuitry first before you touch programming. Uh, if you're having relatively short units that, let's say, students are only going to have a 10 to 15 hour experience, you may want to look at using a software like Scratch, where it Almost nothing ever goes wrong. It, it, you, you drag a set of blocks and it compiles and produces an output and gives them very useful feedback all the time. So I'll give you a couple of examples of that, that, that meets all of those. So I created a program called Pokemon Probability. So this is actually a math-based game written in Python using Turtle. I've done a turtle version and I've done a Pi game version where 
a Pokemon spawns at a location on a grid, depending on an algebraic equation. So this covers algebra all the way from years six through eight, because they actually have to understand and graph equations. It covers all of the, uh, so like five out of the 10 digital technologies curriculum in, in seven to eight. And it's a game where you compete against your friends in order to catch the most Pokemon. And I did this at the time that Pokemon Go was a hit. <laughs> so you kind of have a cross-curriculum, two subjects meeting each other, ticking all the dots. All the kids are playing Pokemon Go at the time. And, you know, there's a systematic way to, to, to build that application. So that, that was one. I also did using the same sort of cross of maths and programming, projectile motion equations. So at the time, this was a couple of years back when Angry Birds was the thing. Kids were making their own Angry Birds game. And depending on the year level, uh, the, the primary years would start a scratch program with those projectile motion equations built in. The older students would program the projectile motions equations themselves. And, uh, you know, they would be rebuilding something that they already are familiar with and excited about. Hmm. Is there a pattern there? Are you looking around for what's hit in what's like the, hit? the age yeah. of the children or students that you are looking to build curriculum and then you <laughs> take some, I know, yeah, you, you use that as um, like the context within which you build something to teach mathematics, for example. Yeah, you could, I mean, so I guess the, if, if I wanted to give people advice in terms of how you prioritize, start with making something exciting for the students because you'll have the teachers sold on that idea immediately. Like if the teachers thinks that my kids are going to love this, that's great. You have mm -hmm. their attention. And at that mm -hmm. point, the teacher just wants to know, okay, so show me how this is going to teach them what you said it's going to teach them. So I think that the, the starting point is an interesting theme and something that, that is engaging to the student. I'll give you an, a simple example of like one single tutorial in Arduino. You can, in about 16 lines, build a program that has a timer in Arduino. It's, you know, delay a millisecond mm -hmm. that stops when you press a button. Now, that stop is either active, you know, the, the start of the timer is either activated by a buzzer or by a light. And that stop measures the reaction time of the student in yeah. milliseconds. That is cool. When kids see that, when you demonstrate it before you go ahead to to build it with them, they want to build their own and they want to measure their reaction time. <laughs> and it's a kind of interesting question that you can expand into, into science and why we react better to sound or light. But to build it, you actually have to create variables, you have to iterate them, you have to use the loop, you have to write some if statements that freeze it. And you have an opportunity to expand that into doing some, you know, hmm. basic data analysis with calculating your averages, best times, worst times, you know, saving the results in an array. And, and yeah. I actually do this, I do this with both, um, the reaction time program with both like Arduino and Python. So that, you know, the, the, the Pokemon probability and projectile motion were like bigger multi, multi lesson, like 10 lesson projects. Whereas, yeah, that, Reaction time is a one lesson example where, where that really is at play. Yeah. And that's something that you'd say that most kids beginning uh, with either the uh, Raspberry Pi in Python or the Arduino will be able to handle. 
fairly early in the learning process? Oh, the the, the uh, reaction time circuit. Yes, hmm. yes. I mean, I am uh, I'm off to Canberra tomorrow, and I'm having an Arduino class. And I'll tell you, like, what 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 I'm. This is in one day. This is what the kids are gonna be doing. So this is themed uh, Electro Gadgeteer, and the there's a we're gonna watch a set of videos about Kala and James Clerk Maxwell, who kind of invented the mm. RGB system. Mm. So they'll start off warming up with circuits, just learning how to use LEDs, resistors, and buttons. At this point, they'll blink one LED, and they will discover at what blink rate they can no longer perceive the blinking, mm. which is real-world information, which tells you, hey, it's the same thing as the refresh rate of those screens there. It's about, you know, 40 to 60 blinks per second at which point they they watch some some videos as like a bbc documentary about maxwell the, the discovery you know first of all thomas young uh, hypothesizing that if painters can mix you know red blue and yellow to make any color in the world mm-hmm. yep. that there could be something about the human eyes that we can only perceive three colors that we mix them together so they next they build an RGB blinker that blinks red, green, blue, red, green, blue, red, green, blue, and witness that mix into white. Yep. If there's time, they build a color mixer, and they also uh, build the reaction time device. So it, it's sort of really themed to tie in together with human perception. You know, the human reaction time is, well, where does that time go? How does sound compare with light? Obviously, the color is, you know, you, you record, I use my phone to show them that when they're seeing white, it's actually red, green, then blue, like red, mm-hmm. and then it turns off. So I just get a blink to go first red, then green, then blue. And they sort of realize, oh my God, like there are yeah. certain limitations to my eyes and my senses fool me all the time. And, and, you know, if things happen too fast, then I perceive these three things as just one. So you get to talk a lot about perception, like human um, human perception and how the, the brain interprets those visual signals. Do you get to talk about physics as well? Not so much. Not so much. Right. So you keep it to the engineering, uh, the mixing the colors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more like, you know, perception. it's human perception, rods, cones, how your eyes work, how your brain basically takes all of those inputs and puts them together into something that makes sense and sort of the natural speed limits, like, you know, the number of blinks per second that that you can perceive. And also, I mean, for example, the 70% of your brain actually puts together your three-dimensional reality. 70% of your brain is involved in vision. And it's something like 2% for hearing. Hence, (laughs) the circuits in your brain that process the hearing produce a result that goes, you know, to the central operator way, way quicker than the ones that do with vision, which is why, you know, we start 100 meter races with a gun, not the green light. The only reason yeah. they don't use guns in Formula One is because, you know, the engines are so loud. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there you go. Interesting fact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always wondered. Um, mm. Sanyan, I'd like to ask you about uh, gifted and talented education because I know that you're doing a bit of work there. What's special about gifted and talented education, especially when it comes to developing curricula 
What, what's different there? I'll tell there? you one difference. I mean, you know, there's, it, there's nothing special about it, you know? There's intelligence is a scale and it just keeps going and mm-hmm. going and going. So, you know, some kids are just very smart and they learn a bit quicker. The difference, you know, when you're very smart kids who pick, you know, first of all, the way it works with gateways is number one, they get selected by their teachers. They get nominated for programs. Their parents actually have to pay for the programs, but the kids select, they have a huge array of programs to select and they, they come to yours. So they really, you get really smart kids that really want to be there. So you can take a, a much more adventurous approach. And you do not, like your standard lesson, the way that, the way a standard lesson works best is that you literally show your students an outcome. This is what we're going to do. Here it is. We're going to finish it in the next hour. And are you with me? Let's go. With, with gifted and talented students, I suppose that can work a bit more different. You, you present things much more in an open-ended way. It's not that we're trying to meet this particular one outcome. I'm going to show you how to use a bunch of tools and you guys are going to create your own variations and we're going to go crazy. I don't know what we're going to build today. Like, actually, that's what excites these kids. This notion of who, you know, we're going to be playing with really cool toys and no one knows what in the world we're going to build. So they're more driven by like a sense of wonder and a sense of an open-ended sense of possibilities rather than achieving that kind of one defined but cool outcome. Right. I hope that makes sense. So from what I've, I've read, uh, because I'm doing a bit of reading on the topic and on the topic of intelligence, and it seems like uh, people with higher IQ are essentially faster learners. Uh, it, it doesn't guarantee outcomes, uh, but uh, it, it does seem to mean that people can, with a higher IQ can learn faster. And from an educator's point of view, I think that uh, means that you can cover more content faster and therefore have a lot of time for a bit of exploration towards the end, which I think this is what you're talking about, having open-ended results, right? Mm, I would say the single biggest factor in terms of whether or how much your average student is going to learn in a lesson is... A sense of intrinsic motivation. I mean, how, how hmm. curious they are, how, how much they really want to learn on that particular topic is to me probably even more important than intelligence. But, mm-hmm. you know, the kids that I get have both, you know, exceptional intelligence and they're exceptionally motivated. Mm-hmm. But yes, the rates, the rates at which they learn. I mean, I, what I cover with gateways with five, six students is typically about 25% more than I would cover with mainstream students in years mm, seven to eight. Exactly. So, yeah, the speed is amazing. Yeah. And and again, you know, even with gateways, I mean, there, there's there's some challenges. You know, not every selected kid really, I have to say, not every selected kid deserves to be there. You know, the, the, the teachers get it right about 80% of the time. And, uh, you know, sometimes kids can get a bit, traumatized imagine you're the smartest kid in your class and you go somewhere and there's like 10 other kids and you think you're good at programming and then there's 10 other kids that that are flying ahead of you like i mean you know your your average 12 year old not all of them process it all that well yes uh you need to show character those uh in those cases i really like putting students in groups initially first lesson i always partnered them up so it's always like a weed. It's not, a, it's not an individual race. If anything, it's a race of me and my hmm. group against another group. Hmm. Collaboration. And so 
that they relax a little bit more that way. Second, I really make a point after a while, like, let's stop and see what everybody did. Let's share ideas. And, and, you know, if some kid really, really flies ahead, I kind of give them an opportunity to, to demonstrate that to a class. So I like upload their file into my computer and I get them to talk through the program. And I do use a lot like tools like Google Drive to just, you know, give students a link so they can access other students' work. And the method of pedagogy there is I try to give them a feeling of like, hey, we are here doing something cool and unusual. And we are all sharing in that endeavor. And so I think that that, that really, you know, helps them also like right. psychologically competition. enjoy it more because, you know, especially boys of that age can get really quite competitive, mm. which isn't bad, but it, it, you know, it can ruin the game, sorry, the group dynamic. Must control it. Yeah. Got any big challenges at the moment that you're facing? Well, with gateways, they're looking to roll out online programs. So I'm working with them to set that up, just trialed a country school. So I've, I've, oh, yeah. I've done one of my programs in Python online and uh, I've spent four sessions using Zoom, actually, mm-hmm. using Zoom and REPL. Have you ever used REPL? No. Have you, Marcus? So- like if you're using Python, it's, it's the best thing out there. So it's basically programming in the browser. But yeah, so I'm looking to roll out um, to do what I do in terms of live, in-person, interactive teaching. And, uh, right. Um, so it's not pre-recorded, right? It's you use Zoom to deliver a lesson to kids, say in rural totally. areas. Uh, but totally. it is live. You are interacting live with them. Absolutely. Mm, and you, you're basically they're sharing screens. You're seeing their code. You're kind of even you can you can hijack their computer and yeah. like correct correct their bugs and you know comment on on their code live as as they're doing it. Great teleeducation. It's like telemedicine. Yeah. So that's a project. And I've also committed to about um, eight lessons of teaching microbit, and I have not yet really spend more than two hours with a micro bit. So that'll, that's going to be interesting. I mean, especially since I won't have much time as I'm going on holiday on the, on the 5th of July. So that's what's right in front of me right now. All right. That's great. Is it time for? Oh dear. Here we go. (laughs) Rapid fire questions. (laughs) Why not? So the first question of the rank is, well, who has been the most influential in shaping the way you teach? Ooh. This is a deep one. Give it your best shot. Yeah, there there's been there has been a few influences. I'll give you one example. There's a guy called Colin Chapman at Caroline Chisholm College here in Melbourne. He's kind of famous. He's he's writing the National Systems Engineering curriculum. And I went to visit him in his school. So we basically, I know him from Gateways. He does Gateways on and off. So I've met him at a few of the Gateways events. But I went to his class and I saw students in groups of four just working away on projects. And Colin was doing next to no interaction. And these kids all had their fundamentals down. At this, at this point, they were basically, you know, doing their own thing. And he called, you know, it's student-led learning. So what was Colin doing? Was he like checking his Facebook feed, 
posting Twitter. Oh, you know, him and I were just talking about <laughs> pedagogy and then what, what it is he's doing, but he had his back turned to his whole class and, and then they were just working away. So I've never seen that in my whole life. Wow. Now, <laughs> in terms of influences, you, you're asking me like, you know, I've had really good mentors that have taught me how to teach, but this guy just showed me what is possible. Hmm. And to be honest, when you see it, you believe that that it's possible and that you two can do it. And then, then I've been getting information from him a lot. And another person was my uh, second teaching mentor out of uni. His name is uh, Buck Darman. And, you know, this guy was more of a pedagogical influence. And then he worked in Keysborough, which is sort of, I'd say, a dodgier suburb of Melbourne. And he really had an authority with kids without being rough or mean or, you know, imposing his will at all. He had a certain manner, way of speaking and confidence that that I tried to to imitate to the best of my ability. It's hard to put it into words, but yeah, so he was a mentor of mine and and, and he was a big influence. Great, thank you. Let's talk about um, hmm, applications. Are there any applications like Evernote and things like that that keep you super organized and productive uh, and on task? Kanban flow. Kanban flow <laughs> is really? my... Looking at it right now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm looking at mine right now. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So okay. I, I, I use both the, uh, you know, the 25-second the, the Pomodoro, sorry, 25-minute mm-hmm. Pomodoro thing, and I've got, I've customized quick. mine to the max. And, uh, you know, I've got my lists of what to do tomorrow, do today, seven days ahead, 30 days ahead, and then I got ideas. So and Why are you talking Italian with tomatoes and stuff? <laughs> What's all this about? Um, oh, like the, the Pomodoro method is this idea that you sort of work in 25-minute bursts with five-minute breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's pretty good. Like if I'm in the zone, if I'm working really well, I begin to ignore it because I'm yes. just flying. But like if you're not having the best of days, you're going to yeah. go, no, I'm going to hammer away at this task for 25 minutes. Then I'm going to walk around, stretch out, sip some tea. Yes. And then I'll do it again. It, it's actually really good to keep you disciplined and organized. Sure. And it, the the app itself, Kanban Flow, kind of also keeps track how much time you spend on certain projects. So it really saves me because I do have to do a lot of boring things. I mean, you know, the developing curriculum is halfway cool stuff because you just play around until something works, but then you got to write documents. You have to write a lot of invoices, correspond a lot by email. And that's, that's where I set up my daily to-do lists and (laughs) reminders. Awesome. I've got to say, I've been using Kanban for about a year now and it's change the way that I work. I've always been productive, but now I actually know what I'm working on exactly like days before I actually work on it. So Kanban Flow is one of the many applications that are built around the Kanban idea, which um, I encourage everybody to have a look at. It's it's a system of cards and Mm -hmm. uh, swim lanes, and uh, it allows you to decide beforehand, uh, break a project into smaller components, and then put those cards into the appropriate, you know, can uh, I ask you, stage Can I ask life. you a couple of questions? Because, yeah. uh, you know, any, when things go wrong with Kanban, you know, when you have an unproductive day, like what are some of the things that, that get in the way? In me, uh, in my case, uh, yeah. 
kids. Yeah, those, those children <laughs> yeah. get away. <laughs> Einstein, my dog, uh, will come and ask for a walk, and I have to take him for a walk. Um, <laughs> Seriously? Yes. You're under the, so, uh, the dog's like, poor thumb. He'll come, yeah. he'll come like, uh, you know, get on his rear feet and touch me with his front feet and stuff, like, like you now on my shoulder, especially right. taking that. And I'll, I'll put him, I'll push him away. I'm working now, Einstein, leave me alone. Yeah. And I'll come back again like a few seconds later. And if he comes in three or four times, then I know that he really needs to go for a walk or something. Anyway, uh, it's kind of a half joke, but things like that. But you know, with the Kanban, what I really like about it is if I have to take Einstein out for a walk or if I have to deal with kids, I come back. All I've got to do is to look at what is in my in progress lane. And I can just get mm. back into context immediately. I don't have to try to remember, where was I? What was I doing? Mm. Right? And same thing in the morning. Like I get up in the morning and mm. sit in front of the computer. I turn on the monitor that displays constantly Kanban flow. This is a monitor dedicated to Kanban. And I can switch on and start working immediately. I don't and have computer. to. How many monitors <laughs> do you have over there? I've got... Uh, Three monitors. One is for Kanban only, and the other two are doing different things depending on what I'm working. I got, I got two. I think I need a third one for Kanban too. So yeah, Kanban should be always displayed. There's a paper version that you can have it on paper, or it could be a white, um, like mm. a whiteboard. I prefer. A I'll tell you the thing that gets me is I do the to-do list for the day the day before, which mm-hmm. is brilliant. And I, but when something comes up that makes your to do today impossible, like mm-hmm. another job or an emergency or a phone call, or maybe one of the, one of the projects kind of blows out, then yeah, then, then I can't meet my goal for the day. And then I'm less productive yeah. because I, I can't get that high at the end of the day of having crushed it. So you know what I think. I do? Uh, on that, it's quite now we're talking about Kanban, but I think it's very interesting. You guys are all like no one man today. <laughs> so what, what I do, like uh, I've got I've got my standard calendar schedule. Like for example, now I'm writing a book, and I've got three days of the week which is specifically allocated to writing a book. Nothing else will fit in it. But you know, things happen. I get an email in the morning from like a student, and uh, he's asking for something that seems to be. No, a broken link, for example, it could be more substantial, like a bug found in one of my videos I've got to fix. So before I do anything, I have to put it in my Kanban flow. So I might just skip it to the top of the today list, for example, and uh, put everything else below it and push everything else below it. Uh, so that is allowed, but only allowed for emergencies. So likely I don't have that many emergencies other than kids and Einstein. <laughs> So my Kanban flow actually flows, but uh, emergencies do happen and um, I'm always mindful and allow them. The thing is that no tasks are left undone. Uh, Once I deal with that emergency, I'm going back to my normal Kanban flow and just continue from there. And uh, what I want to see is that my done uh, column at the end of my Kanban board, that has to be pretty busy by the end of the day. Uh, and uh, that that tells me how productive and uh, successful my day was. Mm. And I can uh, I can just one last one last question for yeah. you. Are you like one of those? Uh, would you say that if you have three good days, you're more likely to have a fourth good one, or you're or you're more likely to bounce back from a bad day with uh, a good one? Like, no, no. Do you uh, carry momentum, or do you bounce back more generally? Yes, look, I'm like a machine when I work. <laughs> yes. I don't have bad days unless something external happens. Uh, yeah. Like, um, 
uh, I have to be in like in a conference, for example, and uh, that they I count it as non-productive because my Kanban flow is empty, <laughs> my done list is empty. Psychologically, it is good, and uh, it uh, I do like meeting people. Like when I met you at Edutech, mm. that was a very unproductive day, but it was a very good day nonetheless. And last week Fair I went enough. to the P test, uh, sorry, the P STEM, the P STEM Expo. Mm. Um, and I met some really interesting people, but I didn't get anything done that day. And uh, still, that was a super good day, but very unproductive. So I'm happy mm. with that. That, But I've got to say, the day after, so I went to Pistem on Tuesday, totally mm. unproductive. The day after Wednesday, I was so energized that my done column in my Kanban screen overflowed to the bottom <laughs> so had about 15 yeah. done items there it was wow it's very unusual for me for a single day so cool there you go thanks yep anytime um let's see I, i'd like to ask you one more actually marcus you you do the honors one more rapid fire questions i would like to ask the question that is highlighted which one which one well, how do you boost your confidence in yeah. teaching stem subjects <laughs> how do you like, um, are you confident? How do you boost when you, your confidence? You okay, I gotta, I gotta go back to the time when, when I lacked it. I mean, yes. the uh, okay, I, I'm on. in luck, no, you know, I'm in luck. Question, there was only one situation that perhaps, um, you know, in my field, a lot of people that teach it, I'd say 75% don't even have, you know, engineering qualifications. So, 75%, you're being so generous. I am already, yeah, maybe I'm generous. So I, I already feel like given given the experience of the last few years and, and also the technical expertise, like I, I always feel pretty confident in my ability. But, you know, sometimes sometimes that's not the case. I, I, had, to, I had a training day about two months back that was for DLTV and it was in object-oriented programming. And I asked people, how many people I here have like an engineering background? And it was, I think, 12 in the workshop, 11 put their hand up. Cool. And how many people have taught object-oriented programming? And five put their hand <laughs> up. And I'm like, okay, I'm behind five people <laughs> yeah. attending my workshop. What in the world are we going to do? But fortunately, they like the creativity. Like I, I, I came up with this idea of, of simple Python object-oriented um it was like a fighter game and you were, you know, a fighter adventure game and you were killing monsters and you were getting your attributes upgraded. And, uh, yeah, they thought, they mm. thought that, um, it was fun. That was a good idea. I thought it was fun. Yeah. But genuinely, I mean, I was nervous. I stammered a few times, but I just had faith that, you know, all I need to deliver is one of many aspects of this workshop, you know, mm -hmm. like a good creative idea that they can take back to class would be more than enough. I don't necessarily have to know more than my mm -hmm. audience. I just have to deliver something that they find valuable. And I think that, you know, for a lot of teachers that are out there with kids that know more than them, like we all have something in common that what we don't know is hundreds of times bigger than what we do know. So can you find something valuable you can deliver it to your audience? And the answer to that is usually yes. Mm -hmm. And then that's kind of what you lean on. That's good advice. Mm -hmm. Any parting thoughts for our listeners? And yeah, like, let's say that our listeners is, um, consist of new STEM teachers, so perhaps new, new graduates of uh, a teaching school. What advice would you give them 
If you had to put this advice on a billboard, what would that billboard mm. say? Hmm. Okay. Uh, okay. Very, very sort of practical stuff. What you want to do is you want to have short learning units. You don't ever want to continue with one particular, say, Python or Arduino. You don't, you don't want to continue beyond 10 lessons. You want to start from scratch three, four times per semester. The reason for that is you don't yet have enough knowledge to basically build six months worth of stuff. And your students are not going to get it the first time anyway. So if you can find creative ways to teach those same core concepts using different technologies, it will be like looking at the same building from five different perspectives. You know, you're going to understand them better and you're going to spend more of your time in your comfort zone than if you try to first time around you know, deliver 25 lessons worth of a particular platform, be that Python, Arduino, VEX, Microbit, you know, from fundamentals to advanced concepts. So I would say first time around in a self-contained sub 10 lesson way, start from beginning multiple times and do it that way. I would also say you're going to be in a situation where your kids know more than you, and that's okay because you're going to be in that situation 10 years from now when you're an expert <laughs> because there is so much to learn in this field that if your kids actively go online, they probably are looking at libraries that you haven't yet seen yeah. that do things that you're not yet aware of. So that's something you just kind of get get used to. Yeah. And you try to build a sense of joint purpose between you and your class that we are trying to do something cool and interesting together. And it's going to take participation from everybody. And we're going to get, you know, you should be open to your students' ideas. Yeah. And uh, try to finally, whether that's one lesson or whether that's a learning sequence, try to always break things down into structured and open-ended. And depending on the type of your students, depending on the type of person you are, that balance may come in different places. You know, in my my case, I'm pretty much a 50-50, 50% structured, 50% open-ended. But, you know, I think that it's essential to have both in, in a good STEM lesson and that you find your own balance to how much of which you apply. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um... I'm reminded of your advice almost every day that you, know, you will never know everything by my students who mm -hmm. <laughs> will always remind me how much or how little I know. So that's great advice, yeah. especially when you're getting started and you think that uh, you don't know too much, which is mm -hmm. actually normal. It's good. Well, thank you, Sanjin. Yes, thank I you. I really appreciate your time and having this really interesting conversation. We covered quite a lot of topics, like even Kanban. Mm. So, yeah. You're I'm very welcome, it. guys. You're very welcome, guys. I think it took us like a half an hour to warm up, but uh, yeah. it was really fun <laughs> was awesome. by the end of it. So hope to uh, see you in Sydney. And, uh, yes, definitely. We'll definitely talk before then. I I've enrolled to one of your subjects. Uh, <laughs> the uh, I enrolled to your... Um, uh, scratch subject. Oh, you've got a scratch oh. uh, lesson. Uh, I think series of lessons on your website. So I've enrolled that because I'm teaching Leo, my son, and and Ari, both of them. I'm teaching them how to do Minecraft uh, modding using Scratch. 
I'm using Tinker. Cool. Uh, but your your what I like about your video course is that it's um, it's a bit a bit faster than the Minecraft, the Tinker Minecraft courses. Uh, you know, it takes you know two or three days just to do a for loop because they use it while they're building something in Minecraft. So you've got to go constantly back into Minecraft, see what the mod does, and go back to Tinker and make another modification and all that. So it's a bit faster. But it's really well, nice I, I would, uh, you know, I can, I'm just doing one with Scratch, actually. We call it, it's the zombie apocalypse, and the kids make, like, <laughs> uh, a tower defense-style game to, to kill the, I, I think, how old are your kids, though? Maybe they're not going to like the 10. idea of killing a lot of zombies. No, oh, no. I think they will. There's no problem. <laughs> That. We've got zombies covered. Uh, actually, uh, Leo's avatar is a zombie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I haven't I haven't created a set of videos, but um, yeah, I've, I've, I've got like a sequence a sequence of programs of how that game builds. If you want, I can I can send you that. Sure, and maybe you can yeah. uh, retheme uh, uh, it. I tried on that. Uh, <laughs> well, if that works, yeah. but okay. Oh, all right. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Sajin. It's been awesome. Talk to you next week. Thanks, mate. See you. Bye. 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 That's all for this episode. The notes for this episode that include links to many of the resources mentioned and information on how to get in touch with Sanyin are available on our website, techexplorations.com forward slash pay forward slash STEMiverse. Each episode comes with its own page on the Tech Explorations website and a goldmine of information in the notes. This Stemiverse podcast episode was produced by Tech Explorations. Do you have any questions or suggestions? Would you like to nominate a friend or colleague to be our guest? Please email us at pa at texplore.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, STEMiverse. That's S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time.